Welcome to another edition of Vision of Zion. I have today with me again, Sean White. Hello, Sean. Hi, Craig. My perennial guest. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The date today is April the 28th, Friday. We finally found some time to knock out another podcast. If you've been waiting on the edge of your seat, which I don't know how many of you are, uh, we're finally getting around to it. It's been a busy week for, for both of us. So... Isaiah chapter 2, what we're going to do a little differently today is the translations that are coming off of the Dead Sea Scrolls are so good, we've decided just to use those, and we won't even uh, refer to Brother Gileadis or the King James Version unless we you know, need to for some reason, but I think these uh, the, they all are very similar in their quality, but there's just something about using the most ancient, uh, anciently available text that makes it really cool to use. So, Isaiah chapter 2. In this chapter, Isaiah is shown an overview of how God takes this earth back from Lucifer's influence and allows people the opportunity to repent and once again hear him. Well, that's that's good news because that's exactly what we need today, isn't it, Sean? Yeah, and it's so to the point in this chapter. I, that's what I love about it is it's very direct. I'll read the verses. Verse 1. This is what Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Judah and Jerusalem today for us symbolize the new promised land of America and the old promised land of Israel. I agree. That, that's borne out in the, this, the next few verses too. It shall happen in the last days that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. You know, I was confused by this as a young man for so long, but now that I understand more, this term mountain is symbolic of a nation or kingdom, not so much a physical place, but a nation or kingdom. This kingdom God sets up will rise in power and might over all the kingdoms of the earth, People of the earth will flock to the righteous kingdom once it is established because of the peace and camaraderie they find in like-minded people. The kingdom will actually be set up in Israel and in America. There will be two promised lands collecting both people from both sides of the world to join with them. And it's, I long for the day when I've I've seen all of us like-minded people coming together treating each other like Christ will have never experienced anything like this before. So this is a very uh, expanded and wonderful interpretation. Sean, I love, I love what you're sharing here. I want to share what I've heard. Well, let's read one more verse. Then I'll, then I'll talk more about what has been said by uh, the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints about these verses. But I really think you're onto something here. Let me read verse three. Many peoples shall go and say, Come, let us go up, let's go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go out, and Yahweh's word from Jerusalem. And uh, I love this verse, and it shows the people longing for righteousness in law and word both. They seek out God's kingdom, yearning for a better world to live in, 
you know, and I think we can all kind of feel that today that we're yearning for like back in the seventies, the sixties or the fifties where we had peace. And uh, in a later part of this verse, we see the law of God coming forth out of one kingdom and the word of or teachings of God coming out of the other kingdom. In my NDE, I saw this as I walked with a savior Christ will live among his people in Jerusalem, and Adam, the first father or the first steward of the earth, will dispense the law to govern the interactions between people and resolve conflict that may arise, thus continuing his stewardship on earth until this earth becomes celestialized. So these two verses taken together, there's been a traditional interpretation, a couple of interpretations. One is uh, the church uh, teaches that mountain is a place where prophets have traditionally gone, right, to get answers. Yeah. We have, um, I think the most, maybe the biggest example would be Moses going to Mount Sinai, but there are others. I think, uh, as I recall, in the Book of Mormon tradition, we had Nephi go to the mountains, right, to get answers. And we have other prophets who go to the mountains for answers, for solace. And as a result of that, we see monasteries built in in the mountains, uh, Christian monasteries. And I think monks build in the mountains as well in other faiths. So there's a symbolism of a mountain being like a, of a holy place. And so when we say a mountain, some people believe that refers to also like a temple. And I've heard people say that, that, uh, that, that you know, Salt Lake or other temples are also a fulfillment of this mountain. But it does say, it does talk about two places, though, doesn't it? it talks yeah. about Zion and it talks about uh, the word of the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And of course, we have an old Jerusalem, which is the traditional Jerusalem, and then we have the new Jerusalem, which will be in the land of Zion. So I do think these this does refer to two different locations. I and think. We need to be careful, too, because things are constantly changing. For for Moses, it was the Mount Sinai. For, um, you know, Brigham Young, he was headed to the mountains of Utah. We have, you know, Jared had his own hill that he went to to find his answers and everything. But we as a whole people and everything are headed to a land or a place where we can all see God face to face, not just one man, but a whole people, just like in uh, the land Bountiful. Um, we're looking for a kingdom or an area that's set aside by God to where we can talk with him face-to-face as a man speaketh to a man. And we think of mountain peaks as being so narrow, and only a couple can go there. Only one or two people could get on this highest point where we're looking at getting millions of people together. So we, you know, today in our day, yes, to go to the mountain would be to go to the temple and sit in the celestial room and pray and ponder and try to get answers. That today is our mountain. It's our. It's where the kingdom of God is set up right now today for us to feel and get answers. But tomorrow, you know, over the next seven years or so, that may not be true. We'll have another place to go to and so forth. So. I love that. And I'm going to find the quote from the church here. I had it up and then I lost it on my phone. Just give me one second to find it. I've been taking pictures of our filly who was born today. One of our horses gave birth. So now it's way back in the back of my screenshots. Here we go. 
So the church says it this way. In ancient times, it was common for a prophet to go to the top of a mountain and to commune with the Lord God. Thus, the term mountain of the Lord symbolically denotes any location where the Lord makes his divine will known as holy prophets. That's what you just said. Um, and yes, in the last mm-hmm. days, uh, so a mountain of the Lord signifies wherever you can receive the word of the Lord from the Lord or through the Lord's prophet. So that means that if those people move to a different location, that is where the mountain is. So that absolutely confirms what you were just talking about. And I think verse three kind of settles in on the fact that there's going to be two centers. Uh, The land of Zion is what they continually call the place that was uh, consecrated by the early church members when they first uh, were asked to go to the Missouri area and dedicate the land and spend their money to buy up the land so they could build Zion, what will soon become, how soon we don't know, but uh, the new Jerusalem. So there we go. I love that. Okay, verse 4. He will judge between the nations and will decide between many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, we can, some of us that can think back to the Book of Mormon and beating their plowshares into, uh, you know, their swords into plowshares as a beautiful deal. But Christ under the direction, of, I need to start over again, Adam under the direction of Christ will arbitrate between the peoples of the earth while Christ teaches us how to live like him. And so, you know, this stewardship, this preparing the way and then opening it up for our Savior to rule and reign throughout the millennium is this stage and uh, allowing things to happen. So is this the stage after the tribulations when the Lord has prevailed and now we are entering into a time of peace? Yes, it will be. It'll be after Armageddon and uh, then will be a short period of time finalizing the temple in Old Jerusalem and getting all the prepared. And then we open this path for the Savior to come and visit and clean every, clean things up around there because he wouldn't want to come to a heap of ruins and everything. We want to make it beautiful and welcoming to him to descend to be with us. So. I haven't uh, gone into all of this yet in detail, but we have to understand that Jesus is not going to bring Zion to us. We have to prepare that before he comes. That's our job. He has to have a kingdom to come back to. You disagree with that or you agree with that? I totally agree. It's just step by step. We can't do it all tomorrow. Um, we, We have to take it step by step. And that includes our attitude and our mindset and our how we treat one another because as good as i am and everything i still am lacking in how i treat other people like christ and how open i am and everything i think we could all find examples in our own lives where we could do a little bit better on treating each other like christ let's let's go to verse six for you have forsaken your people the house of jacob because they are filled from the east with those who practice divination like the Philistines, and they clasp hands with the children of foreigners. 
Let's go back for just a second to verse 5. I think we skipped that one. Oh, I'm sorry. We did. House of Jacob, come, and let's walk in the light of Yahweh. And that's really simple and straightforward, but the house of Jacob here symbolizing the people of all the earth, the all of us that are seeking to see the light of Christ. And then as we were combined with verse six here, uh, I went, you know, I've loved going to the Dead Sea Scrolls. They've, I have found at times when I've been so troubled with King James Version and Avraham's Version, and this is so simple, so He's God is talking to the house of Israel, those who are adopted in even, and they as a people who have strayed from God's law and accepted false prophets who practice divination. So we've kind of lost our, we don't use the term div divination, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong very often, but it means an attempt to gain insight into a question or situation by way of an occultic or standardized process or ritual. So as God, let's go back to it. God is saying many people will panic as they have lost their connection to him. The world will be in great turmoil at this time, and they will seek to find quick answers through mystics, soothsayers, and mediums, which Isaiah gets into more detail later on, and meaning that they will pay for somebody whom they think can hear God's voice to give them answers that they should have gotten on their own. And um, so we just need to be careful of this, and we need to help more than anything else our brothers and sisters and stuff when they're ready for it, to help them hear God's voice and to help them know the little nuances that we've forgotten as a child of how to hear the Holy Ghost and and how to get quiet enough so we can hear and take the time to be quiet enough to hear God's voice again and share our testimonies of that. So I want to share with you an insight that I that I didn't get until a few weeks ago, and maybe everybody knows this, but I'll bet not everybody knows it if I didn't know it because I've read this thing a lot. But if you go back and look at uh, when Daniel is called in to interpret the King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, so go back to Joseph of Egypt. Joseph was uh, called up from prison to interpret the dream, but the Pharaoh was able to tell him what the dream was. And Nebuchadnezzar had a different test for his court of soothsayers, mystics, all these you know wise people that had all these supposed gifts uh, and uh, divination powers. He calls him in and he says, I want you to tell me what my dream was, and I want you to interpret it. I said, well, we can't do that. Tell us what the dream is, and then we'll give you the interpretation. What I didn't realize until uh, this last reading, I think I read a different a different uh, translation, is that Nebuchadnezzar remembered what his dream was. I thought he had forgotten the dream and wanted someone to tell him what it was and then interpret it. No, he knew what he had dreamed, and he was testing his whole entire court to see if they could remember what it was or they could tell him what it was. And of course he was going to kill them all. And uh, lucky for them, Daniel was uh, blessed by the Lord to see the dream and then to have the interpretation. But I didn't realize until recently that, that Nebuchadnezzar knew what the dream was and remembered it before no. he asked them to qu the question. 
Um, just one more comment about this too, is that if you go to Micah chapter five, and if you go to 30 by 21, after the Lord gives his remnant Israel power, these are the kind of things that he gets rid of line items. I'm going to get, I'm going to break down the groves. I'm going to get rid of these soothsayers. He goes right down the list because these are all what? They're all false sources of inspiration. Yeah. Okay. Verse, verses seven and eight. Their land is full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their wealth. Their land is full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Sounds like a really wealthy place. Their land is full of idols. They adore the works of their hands, things their own fingers have made. Here's God is speaking directly to those who live in the promised land of America. There seems to be no end to our wealth and no end to our military might. We have grown prideful and have removed God from our everyday life. We have focused on getting personal gain over serving God and seeking out the poor and needy. Um, we are live in such a choice, blessed land above all others with amazing natural resources, far enough to fill and provide for all of our needs. And we have so easily slipped away and put our per personal gain over the Ten Commandments and other things in our lives, which we have covenanted to do, and the promise to keep a, uh, this land, which is that we would put God first in our lives in all that we do. And that has so slipped away. We're so far from it. What about the word idols? I think a lot of times we think, oh, idols are those little statues that people had in their homes and they worshipped back in the day, you know, the, the god of Baal and others. But this is not the kind of idols that they're talking about here, is it? No. In fact, I think it's in three, chapter 3 that we get into a lot more detail about their idols and everything. But we can so easily see, you know, we've made a lot of money and we've made houses that are like unto castles. We've bought boats that take us away from Sunday activities. We've bought snowmobiles or stuff. Then we sneak away from Sunday activities or things that we could go to the temple or we could, ways that we could serve. And there's, we have to have a nicer pickup and a nicer car when, you know, we have, then we have to work more hours to have it, which takes us away from our commitment to God. And so there's so many things in our day and age that have taken us away from what we really need to do through trying to get gain first. Verses 9 and 11. Man is brought low and mankind is humbled, and the lofty looks of man may be brought low. The arrogance of men will be bowed down, and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. So the Lord has a plan here in this quick overview. All of mankind is brought low, humbled. You know, not just one country, two countries or whatever, but all of mankind. They, once arrogant demeanor is gone, they have to finally turn their hearts and minds back to the Savior as they seek to use the atonement. And that's the real key is throughout all of this. It's trying to get us to turn back to Christ use the atonement, one final attempt in the six, 7,000 years of us being on this earth is to give us that one last opportunity to use the atonement and come back, you know. 
so this reminds me of the phrase we use that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ. This sounds like the same thing, just in different words. Yeah. All right. You mentioned in your notes, Sean, that this is a mirroring point in this chapter. So this is a part of the chiastic structure. It is. It's going to ref the next verses will reflect back in more detail to remind our minds of how important what he just told us was to repeat it to embed us within us deeper. Well, and that's what chiastic does. The structure is that an idea is this that there's repeating sentences at opposite ends of a chapter, let's say, coming to a point. Which the main point, which the main point is what? Right here. Every knee is going to bow and tongue confess and turn their hearts to the Savior. That is the central idea of this chapter. So then it repeats either the same idea backwards or the exact opposite of the former idea. So let's go and read these verses now. Sean, is, thanks for pointing this out about this chapter, by the way. So Isaiah verses 12 through 16. And you'll see the parallels with, uh, you know, verses 7 and 8, for example, and on and upward. For there will be a day of Yahweh, of armies, for all that is proud and arrogant, and lifted up. And it shall be brought low for all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, for all the oaks of Bashan, for all the high mountains, for all the hills that are lifted up, for every lofty tower, every fortified wall, for all the ships of Tarshish, and all the pleasant imagery, and for all the pleasant imagery. Here, God is sharply speaking i can just hear this tone in his voice um here as he tells us that he will give power to yahweh of armies the same man that led the armies in heaven will be given power the one that bound lucifer and cast him down along with the third of the host of heaven he will cast down the prideful vain people of the world the cedars and oaks represent individuals we think could not be humbled Mountains represent large, powerful countries, and hills represent smaller countries. The fortified walls and the lofty towers men build to protect themselves are no match for Yahweh of armies when God gives him the priesthood power to go forth. You know, everything will be crumbled. Everything that we thought was impenetrable, that's not impenetrable to God. If you've got pride or need to be brought low, he will penetrate that, and he will bring it low. There's just nothing that can stop the power of the priesthood when Heavenly Father gives it to Yahweh of armies. So two comments, uh, and one, one of them is a story. So the first comment is to understand this, this ability to conquer the wicked. You go no further than the book of Moses and read about Enoch. I really believe that Enoch is a prototype of this of this leader um, who has the power to do whatever it takes. Because at this point, uh, it's time for the wicked, you know, to be uh, removed from the earth. And as you pointed out, though, people are still repenting. We're still pulling people out of burning cities and all of that. But but this is where the judgments are coming, and it's uh, it's the last final straw. Uh, that was the first comment to go read about Enoch and the power God gave him. It's uh, to me, that's again, a type and a shadow of the future. The second thing is 
when I was in Italy as a missionary, I was ser- serving in a city called Ostia. And there was a woman there named, an, old, an older woman uh, named Sister Reynaldo, or Sorella Reynaldo, as we called them in Italian. And I remember we went to visit her house. And she had a picture painted by Raphael. And it was a picture who was a, an, an important uh, Italian artist. I don't know all the details, but probably during the Renaissance era. And it's a picture of Michael. And he has this sword. And he's got his foot on the head of Satan. And he's got the sword raised to finish the job. And I remember she had in his book of art, she had a close-up of his face. And, <laughs> of course, she's speaking in Italian. So, and she was, um, she, the way the face is painted was what was, it's like the Mona Lisa type of a face. She said, look at that face. And this has been 40, you know, 40 something years ago that I remember this, Sean. And she said to me, she said, that is not the face of happiness. That is not the face of sorrow. And then she started to screech. She said, that is the face of justice, you know, but she said, justicia. And, And man, it was just like, wow, I've never forgotten that. Well, fast forward a few years later, I have, I have made friends with a gentleman in, uh, Las Vegas, and he has a statue of Raphael with that, um, you know, sword and everything in a statue form. And I think about that woman every time, you know, this is not something that uh, pleases or makes anybody happy. This is, this is justice. And at some point justice has to come. And uh, the role that Michael plays is pretty clear in Jude, I think verse six, it's pretty clear in the book of Revelation chapter 12. It's pretty clear what Michael's role was before. So yeah, this is uh this and is we know Book of Revelations that he's the one that binds loose for you know for the millennium and everything. It comes out and they're pretty clear. But um I wanted to kind of go back to Enoch there. I mean, he was a grandson of Adam and he knew his grandfather well. And uh, you know, I never you know, like when he moved the mountain to you know, bring fear and stuff into the Canaanites to give him escape and things, give him a break from their relentless attacks. He did so, so calmly. There was no anger in that or anything else. And that's what I love about true priesthood power is you just, you see this calmness in ordering things and doing things as it has always been. And it's you know, these scenes that I have seen, you know, of Enoch moving that mountain and stuff, I mean, those Canaanites were, they really were afraid. I mean, they wake up the next morning and they're going, oh my gosh, I know we camped on this side of this mountain. What has happened? Why are we here? Oh my gosh, did Enoch do something? You know, and they became so afraid of Enoch because God was with him. Joan of Arc, they were so afraid of her because Michael was with her. Michael was with uh, Moses and was wrestling for his body. Michael was with those that went north into Russia and into Ukraine. I mean, he has always stood to protect. It's really interesting. And I mentioned in the other podcast that uh, there's an account that says Moses died, but there's that other account that he, you know, they wrestled over his body. So uh, we know from modern revelation that Moses was a translated being. Uh, wasn't he one of the people who appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Yeah. So 
and there had been no resurrection yet. So how was Moses appearing uh, without having been translated? So I'm looking at a timeline now. I pulled it up while you were talking, Sean. Adam, according to the Old Testament, lived 930 years. And he and Enoch was the see, son, grand, great, 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 great. He was the great, 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 great grandson, That's I true. think, of Adam, of Adam. But Adam was alive, and they were alive at the same time. In fact, Adam just died shortly before Enoch was translated. So, yeah, they're contemporaries. He knew his he knew Adam for around 360 60 years or so. So they they had a long time together, Sean. I'm surprised, you know, being a grandfather myself and with my grandsons, uh, there's one that just studies everything that I do and wants to, if there's an opportunity to be with me, he's with me. And you see that in families. And I can imagine Enoch turning to his grandfather and finding this great peace and just following him everywhere he could to learn from his grandfather, you know, or great, great grandfather, but being still late, great alive and everything and going. Well, the bottom line here is that like Enoch, there's going to be a time when uh, there's going to be a, this final confrontation before the millennium. Let's go on to verse 17. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the arrogance of men shall be brought low and Yahweh alone shall be exalted in that day. No more false gods, Sean. They're all gone, it sounds like to me. Yeah, even those things by our hands. So, in, and I've heard this term before, and I love it. In God's day of vengeance, he causes the prideful people to be humbled. It's the only way he can give those people another chance to turn back and use the atonement that he has provided for them. This isn't just go out and wipe them all out. This is an opportunity to turn men around, to give them that one last opportunity. And there are Book of Mormon examples where given every opportunity, some people are not going to turn. Yeah. But some do, a lot do. And that's what the Lord is looking for. He's looking for a bounteous harvest. Uh, we must remember that we're all God's children. Nothing would uh, give him greater delight than having all of us return to him. And of exactly. course, this is the very thing that, uh, as you described, that Lucifer tried to do is say, hey, you know, there's a lot of risk. If you go, you may not come back. And that was attractive to a third of the hosts of heaven that stuck with him. But the truth is, there's no salvation in that. So we've got to put it on the line. But boy, the Lord is sure uh, generous with his um, offers of repentance and uh, gathering us as often as we're willing to be gathered. Okay, let's go to the next one. Verse 18. Again, I hope you're all watching the reverse pattern of this chapter. Everything that people boast... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> My part is very short. The idols shall utterly pass away. There we go. Everything that the people have boasted about and they did not seek God's will in making will be destroyed. Many have put their faith only in the things in which they could make and did not seek what God's will was first. Too many have gotten gain through putting others down, suppressing them, and many leaders and successful men think of themselves as gods themselves. 
I've seen this in business. I've seen it in other things that you can never be as good as I am because I have this power. And they've stepped away from God because they've put so much trust in their skills and everything else that nobody could do it. And the reality is, is that they have put people down. They've suppressed them. They've caused them to not be able to grow. It's just um, all those things that they had done were taken away. It's just so important, even in our humble lives where we don't have much or meager things, to seek what would God's will be concerning this? How could I bless somebody else's life while I'm doing this? So, Next verse, 19. Men shall go into the caves of the rocks and into the holes of the earth from before the terror of Yahweh and from the glory of his majesties when he rises arises to shake the earth mightily. You know, I can just see this. You know, people that have gone so against what they knew to be true, so against this, when he arises with glory and strength, they will want to just hide in a cave or a crack in fact, in this next verse, it's interesting as it goes on quite a bit deeper. Let's read it. Verses 20 and 21. In that day, men shall cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which it, which his fingers have made to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to go into the caverns of the rocks and into the clefts of the ragged rocks from before the terror of Yahweh and from the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. You can just see that those of us that have brought glory to ourselves through the things money can buy will want to throw away our worldly things in the deepest, darkest pit and hiding ourselves from his presence will not only, he will not only make the earth shake in a physical way, but in a way that removes the wicked and unrighteous leaders it's just so evident to me how when we feel like we've done something wrong, how small we feel, how little we feel, and how we, God's all seeing eye, we can't hide. We think we can hide from his everything, but we can't. It doesn't matter how far, what extent we go. Well, it's the lesson we have to learn. Final verse, verse 22. Stop trusting in man whose breath is in his nostrils. For of what account is he? This verse is so straight to the point. You just, I mean, you can't get any more blunt and things than turn back to me. Don't trust the world. Get your own answers Seek my opinion. Don't seek the opinion of others. They don't, it doesn't matter. So let's compare that, Sean, to, to complete our chiastic journey through Isaiah chapter 2. We begin Isaiah 2 with saying, let's go up to the mountain of Yahweh. He'll teach us of his ways and we'll walk in his paths. And we'll learn the law from Zion and the word, his word from Jerusalem. And here we're saying, he's saying the opposite. Stop trusting in man. So yeah. there's your there's your beginning and your contrasting ending. Yeah, and even there at the the mirroring point coming back, uh, he will be exalted. You know, in that verse, is 
you know, one way or another, there will be nobody else before me. I will be exalted. So. Well, in closing, I feel like we should remind people, remind our listeners to, and to remind their family and friends and to do it with them. We need to pray. We need to pray for protection, pray for our country, pray for uh, the Lord's hand to um, call people to repentance. There's things that are going on that are beyond our physical control, but the angels are standing by ready to help. And the Lord expects us to pray, right, Sean? The Lord is not happy with the level at which the world is reaching out to him for um uh, for rescue, let's say. We've kind of ignored that he can provide us peace in these troubled times. And as we pray and stuff and learn the pattern of what she has, especially in protecting the righteous and giving opportunities for us to come back and repent, that can provide us such great peace in our hearts when everything else seems so troubling around us. Um it just I can't emphasize how important that's been to me in my life throughout the journeys that I've been is that peace that comes to me, whether it be in surgery or tragedy or uh, just all these terrible things that can happen. There's when I turn to God, there's this wonderful peace. Well, thank you, Greg. Thank you, Sean. This has been Vision of Zion. Thank you for listening. <laughs>